Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. We ask you to guide and lead as we look at your word and show us what you would want us to see from it all. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we, appointed, that we are appointed thereunto. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by any means the tempter might have tempted you and, your, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timothy came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live as, as you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can, there, can we render unto God again for you? For all the joy wherein we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect, and might per, perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct your way unto you, our way unto you, and the Lord make you increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So here we have Paul continuing his telling them that he desires to see them. And this so far for three, for three chapters has been his been his topic. We really want to see you. We miss you. We want to make sure that nothing's happened to you. This is Paul's great love for the church that he started. And this is a church that he, again, remember, he didn't get to really establish this church as well as he liked to. Most of the time, he spent a year to three years in a place raising up a pastor, raising up a leader to take it, you know, take over the church. And this one, he got chased out of the town very quickly. So he had a chance to get some people saved and was pushed out. So this church has had to kind of be raised on its own by God. Now, he had long enough to teach them, but he says, Wherefore, when I could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left alone in Athens. Okay, so when he, when he couldn't conceal, couldn't stay silent any longer, he says, I decided I'd just be left in Athens alone. I'm going to send you Timothy. And this is a big deal because Paul usually has people around him to help him. And this is very important for us as we look at our ministry with God. So many people, especially in America, want to be Lone Ranger Christians. Don't need the church. Don't need anybody. I'm just going to be by myself and I'll minister to God. Well, that's a good way to, to have your... Be, have your legs knocked out from under you and be beat up by Satan to, to try to do it alone. God created the body for a reason, and that's so that we can be built up by one another. Uh, we're told in uh, Proverbs that how can two, you know, uh, that two are better than one and a three-chord bond is not, is not easily broken. And it's very true that when we are with each other, there's a lot of things that happen. Number one, there's accountability. We don't want to look bad in front of other people. There's encouragement. People see that you're not doing well and can lift you up. And there's strength in numbers. So we really need to go out and work with other Christians and stay uh, combined. So Paul's saying, I am so concerned about you that I'm sending you Timothy. Now, he's got a church already being developed, but he is sending Timothy now to go and check this church out. And he sent Timothy... Your, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, to make you stable and to make you firm. He's saying, I'm going out and I want to make sure that everything is okay. 
And this word for comfort means to call to one side and to encourage with. It's the same word as the Holy Spirit has for us. He's our comforter. He comes alongside us and holds us up. And he says, I'm sending Timothy to be the one to come alongside of you. If you've got any issues, you've got any problems, work with him and tell him what's going on. And he is like talking to me is basically what Paul's saying. He's my right-hand man. I'm sending him to you. I'm going to have him check out. I want to make sure that you are growing in faith. And this is something that is very important. You know, from a pastor's perspective, it's like, how are my people doing? And this is Paul going, I'm really concerned about them. And he didn't have a telephone to pick up and say, hey, how's everything going over there? He didn't have, he didn't have Zoom video chats to, to get a look at them and see how they're doing. He has to wait for them to send a letter or respond back to his letter or as he's doing, saying, okay, I'm not hearing from you. I'm sending Timothy because Timothy will tell me what's going on and we'll know what's happening. And uh, so he's sending Timothy to help establish them and make them firm in their beliefs and to comfort them. And how many times do we need comfort? And it's very important that we understand this. This is why we have the body of Christ to give comfort, to come alongside and hold us up, to encourage, to stabilize, and to keep us moving forward. One person alone is easily defeated. Dozens of people are not easily defeated. And when things do get tough, they take strength from each other. Which is one of the reasons, like, the Army came out with this new slogan, an army of one. I think that's the dumbest slogan that they ever came up with. You know, you don't have an army of one. You know, you, you are taught that you need each other. You need somebody to cover your back. You need, your, you need somebody to help you. We as Christians need that same thing. We need somebody to cover our back. We need somebody to be there if we do get beat up to carry us out, if we're struggling to encourage. And this is what Paul is looking at. I'm going to send Timothy to you. I want him to encourage you and comfort you. And he's hoping for a good report, so he gets comforted. Uh, and then he goes to verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for, you, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. He's going, I hope nobody is having problems with the afflictions that I'm going through. All right? Because Paul's afflictions were well known to the rest of the, rest of the churches. Everywhere he went, he had, he had problems. He was thrown into jail. He was, he was looking in, uh, in trouble. Here he is in Athens waiting for word from the other churches uh, on how they're doing. And he has been, when he left Thessalonica, he had been beat, <laughs> chased out of town. He went to Philippi and was, was beat, <laughs> chased out of town. Everywhere he goes, he gets beat. And Paul is going to tell the church many, many times, I bear in my, bodies the, the body, my body the marks of Christ. What he's saying is, I have the scars. I have, I have the evidence that I have suffered. Now, most, of, most Christians don't suffer the way those early church members did by being flogged. All right? Uh, so we don't usually bear in our bodies that strong in evidence of what has happened. But, you know, Paul said three times he was beat by the Jews. Uh, Forty times save one. So on, at least on three occasions, he had floggings from the Jews, which meant he took 39 lashes three times. That's almost 120 lashes. That's 117 lashes across his back that would have left scars on every time that he was beat. He would have been one of those that you would, if you saw him with a shirt off, would have gone, oh my goodness, what, what has happened to you if you didn't know who he was? Paul starts out in his third, had to be at least 30, otherwise he couldn't have been a Pharisee and on the Sanhedrin. Uh, so he has been on his road. So at this point he's in his 40s, most likely. Uh, so he's put on some years. He's not, you know, he's not a young man by any stretch, but he's not, he's not ancient at this point. But he has taken a lot of beatings, which is going to, be, going to put him aside. Uh, he's not going to walk up straight. He's not going to 
He's not, you know, having his muscle, you know, muscles being exposed from the beatings uh, he's, is going to take its toll on him. Uh, but he is saying, I have suffered for God. I've been worthy. By the time he gets into Rome, he's going to be an older man. He's been on the, he's done three missionary trips. He's done a lot of things. So he's up around 50s or 60s by the time he gets sent to Rome to be executed. Oh, he's been, in, he was imprisoned in Rome, yeah. Somewhere in his 60s, 70s, maybe a little older. Because we don't really know, there's not, I keep making this statement, we don't have a lot of time markers in the Bible. We know he made three trips. Now, we in our day could make the trips that he did in, 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 in just a couple weeks. It, was, it wasn't anything like that for him. It, it took him just to get from from uh, Jerusalem to Rome took him several weeks. Of course, he got shipwrecked in the process. So it's taken him months to get that short distance where he would just get on a boat, be there in, in two days, and, okay, we're here, and we could have stopped at each one of the ports that he stopped in. Uh, he's traveling all through Turkey on foot, going around, down into Greece, coming back, and moving back. And as far as we know, he was on foot. Uh, might have had a horse, you know, some kind of horse, but it doesn't sound like he had anything in most cases. He didn't have carts and, and a big uh, coach to ride in. He's walking most of the places that he's going, uh, and at best riding a donkey. And then even, then, even then, it doesn't sound like he was riding a donkey most of the time. So he is walking on all of his trips, which means these trips where we look at that, you know, okay, it's 100 miles, you know, we're looking at three to four, you know, two to four days to get there for that, for that trip. You know, it's always amazed me how we take it so light. I put 500 miles a week on my car and don't even think twice about it. I drive from my house to Kingman, you know, and back in the same day, 60 miles round trip. And in the, you know, in the past, that would be a good two-day trip, if not four or five days. And, uh, you know, and we just take it for granted. And we kind of forget he traveled all over what we now call Turkey on his three trips. They were not short trips. He was gone for several months, if not years, at a time. And a couple of places, he says, I spent six months here or a year here uh, to establish these churches. And he's a church planter. Church planters usually will spend two to five years in a, in a location training up a leader or getting a leader to come, but usually training up a leader, getting that person in place, making sure that they're okay, and then go to the next place to start a church. And Paul did that over and over and over again. Now, how fast he did it, we don't know. But he had to raise people up that he could trust. Now, and for certain people, they grow up really fast with God, and they have a good basic beginning, and they have a good start. Other times you get nobody and you have to really work on training somebody up because you can't just leave the church to a total novice. They have to be handling the word of God accurately. And so this is what he's doing. And he left Thessalonica before he was really ready to. And this is the tenor of his letter. I didn't get to set you up the way I wanted to set, set you up in, you know, as, like you did most churches. So he sends him and he goes, I want to make sure that you're not moved by these afflictions that are happening to me. You know, and this is kind of an interesting thing. The churches loved Paul for the most part, and they were concerned about what was happening to Paul and themselves. <laughs> Everywhere they went, because when Paul would leave, remember the, the uh, Judaizers would come in, and they would tell them all about how Paul's message was not complete. They didn't dare do it while Paul was there, because Paul would have got back in their face and, 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 and uh, defended his people. They waited for him to leave and then would come and go, well, Paul's message was good, but you need to do the, the feast. You need to, go, you need to do fasting. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow all the laws of the, of the uh, Juda, Judea, Judaism. And people would buy into it because it felt good. We easily fall into the good works trap because it w fits our pride. 
you know, well, God, yeah, you saved me by grace, but you know, I really feel like I've got to do something for you. I've got to really earn your, earn your favor, so I'm going to do good things. And it easily falls in, and it makes us get puffed up and feel good because look at what I'm doing, God. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff for you. And God's saying, you got saved by grace. Why are you trying to earn your, earn your keeping of it? And this is very important. And we all, and, I, and you all know, I don't say that we just go out and sin because, because of grace, but we also aren't serving God for good works. We serve him because he's in us and he loves us and we love him and we want to do what's right because he's crucified in our flesh, changing us from the inside out and we start serving him for, the, for just because. Just because he loves us so much. Not because, oh God, if I don't go to church, you're going to, you're going to get after me. God, if I don't read my Bible, you're going to get after me. No, it can't be. that. If that's the reason we're doing it, it's the wrong reasons. We're better off not doing it if that's our, our thinking. You know, we go out there and we know that we're going to be facing suffering. And, you know, he says, and we ourselves, we told you that we're appointed unto this. He goes, we told you we were going to suffer and probably told them that they were going to suffer. This is the sad thing about American Christianity right now. We have this idea that we are not supposed to suffer, and I don't know where it comes from. But I meet so many Christians who, when they suffer, they're immediately going, oh, woe is me, why am I suffering? Because you're living in the enemy's camp, and, you, and you're not the enemy's person, you're under a battle. Maybe that could be the reason. Maybe because Jesus told us we would. You know, we need to get to this point where we understand there is suffering for being Christ. You know, so much so, he's, Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They put him on a cross and killed him. The world should hate us because we stand for God. And, you know, yes, on one side we have a good reputation. They're going, well, that's a good Christian. That, they, they, but at the same time, conviction comes because of our stance for God. We go walk around and God splashes all over them and they don't like it because all of a sudden they see how bad they are. And that is what living God's way does to people. We're a light on the hill. We are a shining light. We're not perfect like Jesus was, but we are a light that shines and people look at us and say, well, I guess it is possible to do the right things, but boy, they sure irritate me because I can't. And in their flesh, they cannot live godly lives. In our flesh, we cannot live godly life. This is why God crucifies our flesh and changes us. And then when he changes us, we have a godly life that people look at, but that they have a mixed feeling. They want what we have, but at the same time, the sin nature is repulsed by what we have. And it, it has a very, and it's hard on people. They don't know what to do. You know, they're going, I really like what they do. They, they, they live so well, and I kind of like what they're doing, but man, they just feel so uncomfortable when I'm anywhere near them. And this is what righteousness does. It convicts the sinner. And it convicts ourselves as well. But it convicts the lost sinner that I can't live that way. And our job is to tell them, you're right, you can't live that way, but God in you can live this way. And this is what Paul is saying. We told you we were going to suffer, you know, and I'm hoping that it hasn't put you off because we're suffering. For verily, we were, when, when we were with you, we told you before that, you, that we should suffer tribulation even as it has come to pass and you know. So Paul's going, we told you we were going to suffer. Don't take it so bad that we've been, that I have been beat. Don't take it so bad that I have been chased out of these other towns. You know, that the Judaizers come in and make my life miserable, that, that the, the world is not listening to my message. You know, it's an amazing thing when we read through the Bible how many times people did not listen to the prophets or the men of God and the teachers. And they were looked at and criticized. Jeremiah keeps getting thrown into prison, thrown into cisterns, brutally, brutally beat. Um, 
we see all these guys have trouble. Elijah, they're going to come and try to arrest him. And he goes, nope, God's going to keep me from being arrested. Uh, Elisha does the same thing. Elisha tells, you know, they come to get him, arrest him, and uh, Elijah, rather, they come to arrest him, and his servant's all panicking, and God says, open his eyes so he can see. And he says, there's a whole army around the army that's, that circled him. It's very important for us to understand if God is on our side, nothing can stand against us. You know, and Paul said it, no, no depth, no height, no width, no nothing can stand against us. And the problem is we look at it by sight and say, oh my goodness, God, there's a lot of, there's a lot of enemy out there. You know, there's a whole lot of enemy out there, God. I don't know if I can stand up to this. And God says, well, just remember that I'm on your side. Us with God is, is majority. And we need to remember that. And he has plenty of angels to protect us. And when we're walking with him, we are perfectly safe in his will. Now, we may get hurt. Paul got hurt. But he was still safe. He knew where he was at, where God wanted him. And he goes, I'm just serving God. I am going to rejoice in what happens to me because God is, on, is, is with me. And this is the important thing. When we grab hold of the fact that God is on our side and we're doing what he's asked us to do, we just go forward and just say, okay, God, I'm ready. Okay, God, I'm going to get beat by this whip. Okay, I guess I'm going to get beat by this whip. They're going to throw me in jail. All right, I guess I get thrown into jail. They're going to do all the different things that the, happen to the martyrs. You know, uh, and we won't discuss that. If you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know all the crazy things that got done to, to Christians. But Satan always will try to embarrass and hurt Christians. And the biggest thing he will try to do is embarrass them. Because embarrassment hurts a lot longer than the pain does. Physical pain, he'll try to embarrass them. Make them look bad. Now, it's an amazing thing because it's funny over the years I've watched these little things talking about how churches look for pastors. And they always put this great big list of good things on the pastor. And then they will show Paul's resume and say, you know, Paul couldn't get, couldn't, couldn't get hired as your pastor. Uh, you know, or they'll even show you Jesus' resume. Jesus would not be hired in most churches. You know, he hung out with the, the bad people. And they're going, well, what kind of pastor, what kind of pastor would do that? Well, probably a good pastor would be in reaching out to the community. You know, now, would you hang out at the bar and, and get drunk? No, and Jesus didn't do that. He hung out at the parties. He enjoyed the parties. But he wasn't a, you know, a drunk and all these things. But he was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Most churches would go, ah, can't have that. You know, without his name on the top of that resume, they'd go, ah, this guy hangs out. No, no, he, this is a party guy. Uh-uh, we're not taking him. Paul? In jail? Chased out of town? We don't want that kind of a pastor. And Paul is saying, this is, I, we told you that these things were going to happen. You know, and again, we don't want to be chased out of town because of bad things, but when we're chased out of town because we stand up for God, it's a good thing. If we're in prison because of standing for God, it's a good thing. And we need to be able to understand that these are good things. And we are going to suffer for Christ at some point. And in, we've been talking a lot about it to, you know, over time. Even here in America, it is starting. And it's going to get worse. If we look around and see what's going on in our world, things are getting bad in our country. And Christians are being attacked. We have governments trying to shut down, uh, state governments and local governments trying to shut down churches. I've been reading about several churches that have been threatened by the city that they're in because they're still meeting with being declared nuisances and having their ch churches knocked down by bulldozers and having to pay the price for it. This is happening in, in San Francisco and in Chicago. That they're, they're saying, well, you're not listening to us. We're going to declare you a public nuisance. The very towns that are having riots tearing their city apart are going to go after churches because they meet. Yeah. We are in a backwards world. Let's go riot and tear the place apart, but these guys are going to pray for your city and be good 
we're going to tear down their building because they're not listening. Yeah. We've got another mayor, that's in, uh, Governor Maine, that's saying, if she approves of their church, they can meet. State-approved church, yeah. you know, which is constitutionally illegal. We have very strange things going on in America that are against the Constitution, and some of them are winning in the lower courts, which is scary. We have things happening that we need to be aware of, that things are coming. Yeah, it is, it is what it is. We have been very fortunate in America to be as free with our religion as we have been. Oh, everything happens, and, and right now what we're looking at is what has happened to tear down other countries when they went into communism. They went after church. They, was, they went after the history of the people. They caused chaos in the cities. We are on the communist rise of power plan. Without God stepping in with miraculous re revival, our country is over. How long? I don't know, but most of those countries fell within a year or two of of all this trouble starting. We are in a dangerous place right now. We need to pray for revival. We need to pray for our leaders to get a backbone to stand up for, for our democracy, or for, for our republic. Many of these governors are being very strange. They're dictators. They're being dictators. Verse 5 says, For this cause I, would no, I could no longer forbear. I sent to know your faith, lest by any means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. So he's going, I, and he's going, I'm really concerned for you. He's going, I'm so concerned about you that I have to find out how you're doing. I need to find out, are you still wa walking in faith? Because he knows that there are going to be under attack by Satan. This is the hardest thing when you teach somebody is to, to hope that they're going to, to live out what's being taught. And this is Paul's concern. We taught you the truth. Are you still living in it? Or did we waste our time you know, and need to come back? Even though he wasn't welcome there, he's been chased out. But he said, I want to find out. Have I wasted my time in giving you this work? And you know, we see all the different successes that Paul had through the, through the book of Acts. I have this strange feeling that there probably were some places that he did not get a very successful meeting. Maybe chased out of town too quickly, didn't find anybody to get saved, you know, walking into town, meeting people, nobody responds, spend a week or so there, nobody responds, go to the next town. Just as the disciples had been told when Jesus sent them two by two, he says, go out. If nobody responds to you as you walk out the city, shake the dust off your feet and say, you know, that, they, that their blessing is no longer there and go to the next town. I cannot believe that everywhere Paul went, he was successful. All right. But he probably walked through some cities and, you know, okay, this city says no, nope. next city. <laughs> oh, this one. Okay, no, we're going to start, start a church here. And I could be wrong. He could, it could be that there was no negative things because he walked with God and, and had the power of God. But you know, if you look at the map, there's a lot of cities between, some of the, between one city and the next city he talks about. And I'm going, okay, Paul, you never talked to anybody in any of those cities along that road? <laughs> I don't think so. I just think there was no real response to uh, be able to start a church in any of them. So he and kept going until he found a response and started a church there. Which is good for us because we need to know that. We're not going to be successful in every single thing we do. We're not going to be successful with every single person we talk to. They're not going to say, oh my goodness, yes, I want to become a Christian. It would really be nice if everybody we talked to became a Christian. But that is not the way it is. Sometimes we're planting seeds. Sometimes we're watering. Sometimes we get to reap. And sometimes our seeds are planted on hard ground and the, and the devil comes along and snatches it away. Sometimes it's overly, abundant, uh, overly weeded and it doesn't grow. We plant the seeds and that's all we're told to do is plant. 
And Paul is worried. Did we waste our time? Have we, has it become thing? He goes, I have got to see if the temple didn't come in and waste you. I want to know. I have to know. And then in verse 8, uh, verse 6 rather, but, but now when Timothy came from you unto us and brought good tidings of your faith and charity and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see of us again as we uh, have of you. He says, I got good news. Timothy came back and it was a good report. He says, he says that you are doing good in your faith. You know, this is the beautiful thing, faith, the conviction that something is true, you know, and having great fervor in it. He says, your faith is strong. And he goes, and it is wonderful to hear this news and your charity. And if you read any other version other than the King James, it says love. It's the same word as agape. So your love. Uh, and it's that unconditional love that gives. And this is the beauty about love. True love has action involved with it. It reaches out to touch people. It does not just sit back and take. And the unconditional, objective love of God reaches out to others to show that they are loved. And Paul says, you're showing that kind of love. Your faith is strong. You have great conviction. You're following God and you are fervent in yours. This word here for faith is a very strong word of showing fervency and trust in God. And faith is just that. It is complete trust in God. We all have faith. All human beings have faith. What do we place our faith in? In the scriptures, we place it in God. And it's that trust. And the more I place faith into him, the more I see him work, the greater my faith becomes. And the more I read God's word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I read the word. He challenges me to walk in faith. I start walking in faith. And then he says, okay, now you've got experience on top of your faith. And he says, now we're going to take your faith to the next level. And the next level and keeps moving it forward. And the beauty of this is the more we experience God, the stronger our faith can be with God, and the less it's built on hope, and the more it's built on experience. And this is what we have. When we sit down in these chairs, we're, we're, we're placing faith in the chair. The, our chairs look like they're strong. They are strong as far as I can tell. They, they, most of our chairs are in good repair, and they, and they can, can hold up. There are chairs that I look at, not around here, but there I've, been, I've been at chairs where I look at them going, oh, I'm not sitting in that chair. That chair is going to fall right underneath me. I, I weigh 300 pounds. I can't sit in that chair. You know, and God is saying, is your faith in him? Is it getting stronger with each day that it's practiced? Last night we talked about the widow of Zarephath. She's of just getting her flower out every day, and then she gets her son back and says, now I believe. Now I believe. But what she was saying, not that she didn't have faith before, but she has stepped up to the next level of faith, saying, I no longer just believe and have this, this hope for. I know that what you've said is true. This is where we are when we get to go in with God and we start to really exercise our faith. We read the word of God and we're going, wow, God, I really hope that's true. And then a little while later, it's like, wow, God, I know it's true. You have, been, you have been faithful every time. I know it's true. I don't even have any doubt in my mind. It's still faith, but my faith has, gone, has grown so much that there's no doubt, there's no hope. It is, God, you are going to do this. And this is the beauty. The longer we walk with God, the stronger our faith gets. I was talking to somebody today, and he was going, you know, well, he was being all negative. I'm going, you know, but we're in, but we're in God's hands. And then he gives some up, but God is in charge. My answer was always God. And he's a Christian, but he is very negative in many of what things that he believes and doesn't really trust God yet. And I was trying to make the point of him, 
God is in charge, and if God is who he says he is, and he is, then I can have confidence in him taking care of me. Just as Paul's looking out. I hope we didn't go, oh, you guys are doing so good. Timothy has given me a good report. Your faith is strong. You're walking with God. You're loving one another. And it says, and besides that, you have good remembrances of us. <laughs> You're remembering us well. And you want to see us come back. Now, there were places where people did not want to see Paul coming back, like Jerusalem, Damascus. But here they were saying, we want to see you come back, Paul. We're looking forward to your return visit. And partially, Paul's second and third journeys were to go out and revisit churches that he had established to make sure that everything was going well. And he says, you remember us, and you're wanting to see us. Therefore... So this is a continuation. Therefore, always tells us that it's continuing on it. Brethren, we were comforted over you in our affliction and distress by your faith. Have you ever seen somebody else doing well and you take comfort in the fact that they're doing well even if you're not, where apparently you're not? And Paul's saying, this church is going well. I did not waste my time. I may be suffering here in, in Athens, but this church is doing good, and it encouraged him. And this is where I am at sometimes when I look at people growing in our church and going, wow, I am so happy, God, that you're growing them. Now, I don't usually suffer. I haven't suffered the way Paul has. I'm not suffering with the idea of being depressed. But, you know, there are times when, because I'm so busy, that I'm going, God, I wish that I wasn't having to go through all of this. And it's great to watch people grow because it tells you that you're not wasting your time. You know, when you see your children growing in Christ, when you see your grandkids growing in Christ, you see friends that are getting stronger, being drawn to Christ, it shows that you're not wasting time. And no matter how you feel, you go, it's, it's, it's okay. Somebody is, somebody is getting benefit out of this. And Paul's saying, okay, I've been beat, I'm suffering, things are bad, but they're growing. They're growing, so I am, oh, it's all okay. God, you can take me home. They're, they're stable. They, they're going to keep growing. I'm ready. And this is where Paul's at. God, if you want to take me home, I'm ready to go home. That, that church is doing good. And they've come back with this great message. And then verse 8, For now we live... If you stand fast in the Lord, for what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all joy wherein we joy for your sakes before God. So he's saying, you stand. You stand, and that brings great joy. This is the way parents look at their children when they're doing good. My kids are doing good. Now, the other side of the coin is that they're not doing good. <laughs> we, we can get very depressed. You know, boy, I really blew it. I had that time when I suffered, when my oldest son would walk away from God and things were looking gloomy. My second son had gotten married and he was not serving God. It's like, God, what did I do wrong? And I had to learn that, yes, I made a lot of mistakes. I'm going to be the first to admit it. I worked 80 hours a week. I was rare, rarely around my kids for many, many years. I made lots of mistakes in my marriage and my kid, with my kids. But you know what? I did the best that I could and how I could, and God says, I'm going to redeem it. And then I got out of that stupid business and started being able to spend time with my kids and be able to invest in them. Maybe a little on the late side with the older ones, <laughs> but able to invest and, and follow through with them. But you know, it's important because now I look at my kids and go on, for the most part, they're doing well. They're doing well. They're, they're all except one are serving God and following after God. So there's hope. The third one I still, the, third, the, the one who's not, I still have hope for. I pray for him. I've learned not to try to push too hard because I really pushed too hard and pushed him away for a long time. But the idea here that I want to see you. If you all stand, my greatest goal Besides hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant, is just that my kids do better than I did. That they treat each other and their children and their wives better than I did mine. 
you know, growing, you know, with early days, and that they will follow God. And, you know, as the Puritan said, I, I want them to stand, I want them to stand on my shoulders and have an advantage. And for the most part, I think my kids have had it, that advantage. And I think the church is seeing that advantage. If people can stand on my shoulders and go beyond what I could ever hope for, then I have done my job teaching and building. My goal is to see everybody do better than I do and grow and be farther along than I am. And that would tell me that I've done my job because if I want people to get to where they don't need me, that they're able to stand on their own feet and they're, they're training others and watching those people outstrip them. The goal is always, the teacher's goal is that the student will get further along than they are. That I've poured everything I have into my students that I'm training so that they can then pour everything they have plus everything else that they've learned into somebody else and that they do better than, than, than the student. So each generation get stronger with God. And this is where Paul's at. I've poured out to you. I'm looking forward. You guys are standing on your own. Thank God you're doing this, and now you're able to go forward. In spite of all the suffering I have, you are standing. And he says, for what thanks can we render to God? Again. <laughs> he goes, we've already given thanks for you. How many more times can we give thanks for you? And he says, for the, all the joy... The whole idea of joy, something that causes joy, wherein we joy. And this second word's a whole different Greek word. It really, the first one says, you, we have caused to joy. And the second one is that ex rejoicing for an exceedingly well done job. He says, you're causing us joy and because you have done exceedingly well. And I love the word exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever, ever understand and, and plan. Again, it's that blessing when you teach somebody to watch them do better than you could ever do. The coach who teaches his, his players to, to play better than he or she could have ever played takes joy in watching them execute the things that they showed them the basics of. Paul says, I gave you, and Paul literally just had time to show him the basics. And the Holy Spirit has taken off and built them up and encouraged them. And then he goes, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. So he says, we're praying night and day that we're going to come back and see you. That we can perfect, make complete. He says, I'm sure there's some holes, and we're looking forward to being able to come in and help you perfect your beliefs. And this is very important. If you ever think that you've gotten to the place where you have learned everything there is to know about God in the Bible, you're in trouble. All right? I graduated from Bible school, and I thought I knew all the answers to all the problems of everything there was to do, and then God had to teach me how dumb I was. You, you don't know anything yet. And it's very important. But even having said that, I know more than most people. And even from that, I knew more than most people. But I cannot get arrogant by the, what I know because God will then turn around and show me how little I know. Because it says, you may know more than they, but what do you know compared to me? Uh, nothing. <laughs> you know, God has a way of humbling us to, to show us that we don't really know anything about him. And it's an amazing thing because I'm really humbled to the fact that I don't know a lot about God. Yes, I've spent 40 years studying about him and studying him and his word and know a lot of things. But God keeps pointing out to me how little I know about him and how little I really understand what I thought I understood. Because he'll put me in a test to say, do you really understand what this is going on? Uh, well, I guess not, God, because I failed that test pretty good. Uh, all right, God, let's try this again. Let's, let's study some more. Let's make it more real. Every test we go through is to very much to say, are you really believing what you, what you say you believe? And then, once we do pass that test, 
He's going to say, now let me show you the next level of what, what I've been teaching you. Going back to our widow of Zarephath, she learned faith. Every morning, she, every morning she'd go to that flower to make, a bo- you know, make her bread. One, probably, especially at the beginning, is it going to keep holding out? I know the prophet said it's going to hold out till it rains, but is it going to hold out? And every day getting more and more faith. More and more faith. Then her son dies and she loses all of her faith. God, how could you do this to me? You've been blessing us. You gave us flour every morning and now you've taken my, taken my son. God will do that to us all the time. When we're walking in there, he'll take something that we think is special and say, what if I take this away from you? Will you still love and follow me? This happened to Job. You know, Satan goes, well, of course he follows you. You put a hedge around him. Everything, everything's good in his life. Why wouldn't he follow you? All right, you can take all the stuff. And in a period of just hours, he lost everything. All of his possessions and his kids. The only thing left is the tent that he was sleeping in and you know, that he had right there and his wife and whatever servants they had there. But that was all he had left. And he's saying, all right, God, you took it all away, I guess. Naked, naked I came into this world. Naked, you'll take me home. And just sat there, stunned like we would, challenged on, am I going to believe God? God, you just took away everything. Do I still trust you? And he was faithful. Then along comes and he loses his health. You know, soars from the foot, soles of his feet to the top of his head. It doesn't tell us what the disease he was struck with on it, but he was covered with putrefying sores that itched, obviously, because he's scratching them with a clay pot. So bad that his wife looks at him and says, why don't you just curse God and get it over with? And a lot of people make fun of her and say that she was being bad. I think she was almost feeling self-pity. God, you know, Job, so things are so bad. Why don't you just curse God and get it over with? Why suffer any longer? Just curse God and let him strike you dead. Because I'm, I can't take seeing you suffer. Now, she may have literally been bad, but I think it was her love for him that drove her that comment. I could be wrong, but that's what I believe. And it's almost like, God, just finish, you know, just finish the whole job. You know, you, you, you've taken him to great pain, just finish the job. Are we ready to serve God when all of our world is stripped away from us that we think is important? Here's what Paul is saying. You know, we want to just help you complete your faith. Make, we're gonna, I just want to come and fill in, fill in the holes. Teach you a little, little deeper. Teach you a little further so that you're really going to be able to stand. And this is our goal. As long as God has me here, I want to raise people up and keep filling in their holes, filling in, the, filling in and completing their, their learning, and eventually watch where I can no longer teach because people have grown so far. And, but God also grows me at the same time. So that, there's, a, there's a two-way process. And I am doing something that a lot of pastors don't do. I listen to a lot of other teachings so that I am being taught. One of the problems that pastors fall into often is they only teach not to learn for themselves. And that's dangerous for them because they'll get stuck. And they will very quickly get outstripped. They don't listen to other messages. I'm always listening to other pastors. I'm always trying to read in read scriptures that are outside of just for, for this. Yes, there's times when I slip and I get into this habit of study just for study purposes and teaching. But for the most part, I'm also reading my Bible every day, something totally opposite that, of what's being, being taught for the studies. I have to grow to be able to feed other people continually. And this is something that's very important. Who feeds the pastor? Yes, the Holy Spirit does. But... We also have to be fed. We also have to have that person that feeds us. Verse 11 says, uh, perfect, perfect that which is lacking in your faith, in, in verse 10. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. So he says, we're putting our hand, life in him. When God is ready for us to get to you, we're going to get there. 
That is probably the hardest prayer that we can make before God. God, I'm putting my life in your hands. This is what I really want to do, but God, I'm going to wait on you. The hardest thing is to wait. Because we, as human beings, want to run. And there is times in my life where God has said, just stand still and be quiet. Let me show you. Let me teach you. And it is important for us to, at those times, wait. And it is just as important when God says, move, to get back up and move. Because I remember one very specific time in my life where God said, stand and just, just be still. the way yeah. uh, and I got so restful that when God said move I, re- I kind of bent back I'm going God I'm enjoying this rest at first I did not want to rest you know, I was last thing I wanted to do was rest and once I got resting it's like uh, no I don't want to do this And we need to get to the place where we are so sensitive to God that when God says rest, we rest. When he says move, we move. And when he says move in a certain direction, we move in the direction he says. Not in another direction. We're not not Jonah running the opposite way that God says to to move. This is a lot of power in this verse. People, we really want to come to you, but we are going to wait for God to move us and direct our way. And the Lord make you increase and abound in love one to another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So he's he's saying, keep doing what you're doing. Keep loving one another. Keep moving forward. And that God will increase and abound. And this, this word for abound is overflow overflow your love one for another. My prayer for our church is that we keep growing and that we overflow in what God is teaching us. That the Spirit so fills us up to the brim with the Spirit that He splashes all over everybody. He fills us with so much love that it splashes onto everybody else. The forgiveness, the grace, that God works in our, in our church and our people to overflow himself out of us. And this is Paul's prayer to them. I want you overflowing. I want your love to just flow onto everybody that's around you because it is so full toward one another and toward all. This is the most important thing, not just overflowing to our church. It's pretty easy to love the other other members of the church generally. You know, they are usually kind. They're usually loving back to you. And it's pretty easy. It's easy to love people who love you. It's easy to like people who like you. It's easy to love people who kind of like you in the first place. But Paul says, and to all men. Those guys out there that are going to beat you when you talk about Jesus, and we want your love to overflow to them. Our goal is always to take what we learn in the church out of the church and be able to share the gospel with others. Many times it's going to be through our lifestyle. We live a lifestyle that convicts. We bring God into every situation that we are, which should splash the Holy Spirit all over everybody because he's overflowing in us. And maybe even more often than we do, using words to give the gospel. Tell people our story. What is your story? Can you tell people how you got saved and what God means to you? You know, it is important to be able to do that. I followed after God from five years old till 10 before I finally got saved, going to church on my own. Nobody in my family making me go to church. When I see our kids in our town that come to, ch- come to church on their own without their family, I really reach out to them because my heart is the same. That was me going to church, when God finally got my heart and convicted me that I was a sinner, 
going forward and praying and having God change me at 10 years old, giving me a heart to serve him, starting doing correspondence studies on Bible studies at 12 years old, being into Moody Bible Institute studies at 15 years old. Those professors had no idea that they were dealing with a 15-year-old on a correspondence course. They, but God had moved me forward. He had changed my life when I, 10 years old when I, got, when I got saved. He took a temper away from me. He made me a new creation. Not a perfect creation, but a new creation. Do you know your story well enough to tell others your story? It is a beautiful thing to be able to do that and an essential thing because we are witnesses of what God has done for us. And when we're sharing what God has done for us, there is nobody out there that can, can convince you that it didn't happen to you. It happened to you. Well, I don't think it really happened that way. I was there. <laughs> I know what happened in my life. I know the changes that happened in me. I know how God changed who I was and moved me forward. We need to be able to share those things. And then we share the gospel message as well, that we're all lost sinners, that we all des deserve punishment, and Jesus died for our sins, and we cannot enter heaven without the free gift of his salvation and because he died for our sins, and we accept that. So we tie all of that together, our testimony, the, the gospel message, and share it with people. The gospel message is a real simple message. I tell us all the time. We can give the entire gospel message in 45 seconds. I just did it. All right? Now, hopefully, when we're talking to people, we give them a little more than the 45-second gospel message. But, you know, that's all it really takes. We're all lost sinners destined for hell, and Jesus died for our sins, and we need to accept him. That's the gospel message. That's enough to get somebody saved. Now, hopefully, I can give them the verses, but... You know, people go, well, I just didn't have time to give them the gospel message. Well, how long did you talk about the weather? You know, how long did you gripe about the conditions at work? And you didn't have 45 seconds to give them the gospel message? We need to be careful about this. We make time for what we think is important. We make funds available for what we think is important. So when we don't bring God into our conversations and up with people, then we're really saying, God, you're not that important to me. We need to bring him up. And I'm not saying every single time you talk to somebody and every single person who you talk to has to have the gospel. But think back over your week. How many times have you shared the gospel with the people that you've been around and talked to? Has he come up at all? It's very important. I've had several discussions, and most of them don't start out being witnessing discussions. But at some point, God comes up in my conversations with people. Why? Because he is important to me. You know, how important is he to you will be shown. How much effort do we put into God? You know, we have people, and I always wonder how people can afford to smoke and drink. You know, Package, you know, package of cigarettes. You know, I don't even know what they cost anymore. Last I knew it was 3 or $4, but I've been told they're much more than that. How does anybody afford to, to burn their money up in one day on a package of cigarettes? Buying, going to the bar and spending 5 6 7 $8 for a drink. One drink. And then spending the whole night there drinking. You know, and I think, but then I think about how much I give in tithes and offerings. When God says, give this much money. Okay, God. I probably spend as much as most of them <laughs> do on their other things. But I know that I'm giving to God. So it's how much is he? How important is he unto, to us? Is he out there that he's abounding in us and being built up toward us? And then the last verse. To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in the holiness before God even our Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He's saying our ultimate goal is to be presented to God blameless. And you know what? As Christians, that's a pretty easy accomplishment because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
So he's saying, if you're clothed in Christ, you're going to be blameless. Now he's saying more than that. He's hoping that we live out our righteousness and our holiness as others can see. But you know, when we stand before God, it is real easy because he just looks and says, oh, there's Jesus. Welcome. Because you're clothed in Jesus Christ. Now, when we stand at the Bema seat of Christ, he's going to look at what we did and he's going to give us our rewards for what we've done, allowed him to do through us. And that note that I said, what we have allowed him to do through us, it is not our works that we get rewarded for because our works are filthy rags. He says, okay, you did it, fine. Here, you know, that's fine. Oh, you let me do this here. And he's going to take all of the good, all of the things that we've done in this world, put them in the fire and see what comes out. Everything that I have done that's wood, hay, and stubble, filthy rags, is going to burn up. And he's going to pull out all the things that he did in my life. And it'll be silver, gold, and precious gems. And we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And you know, God is not judging us by how well we do compared to others. He's comparing us to how well we did with the gifts he gave us. And this is very important. If God gives you one gift and you use that gift 100% of the time, which nobody is going to, all right, let's say you use it 90% of the time, <laughs> you're going to have greater reward than that person who was given 10 gifts who only used them about 10% of the time. And God's going to say, you didn't use the gifts I gave you very well. Why? You know, they may have gotten more, by the world standard, they got, may have got more done. They had a lot more gifts that they used a small amount and got a lot of what the world would say things done, but God's going to say, you didn't live up to your potential. The, the, the poor brother or sister in the church that all they can do is pray, and they pray faithfully for the church, they pray faithfully for the people in the church, is going to have more reward than the pastor that stands up every day and preaches and, and teaches, but doesn't do it 100%. Because that person lived up to their, to their gifts and followed through. Don't ever compare yourself with anybody else that's out there in the church or that you even know. You say, God, am I living faithfully to you to the best of my ability with your strength? And you know the great thing is when you're faithful to God, He'll give you more and more responsibilities. He'll give you more and more gifts. And he'll help you do better. And if we don't use our gifts, he takes them away. And says, well, I'm going to give them to somebody who's going to use it. And it's very important that we walk in faith in Christ. Because our ultimate pur purpose is to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we stand before him at the beam of seat of Christ as believers. Because as believers, we won't stand at the white throne judgment. We will be sitting in this, behind the Father watching him judge the world. But we will have gone through our judgment before that. And we will have our rewards. And we don't know what rewards mean in heaven, but you know what? I want rewards. I'm greedy. I want rewards. I want to serve God. I want to serve God. I want to get there. But I also want to hear, well done. You did what I asked you to do. The last thing I want to hear is, all right, you got here just by my grace. Get over there. That's better than the alternative. You got here by the skin of your teeth, by, by God's grace, but it's better than being over at the white throne judgment. But I really want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to finish well. I have seen so many people as they get older not finish well and fall away. And I do not want to be one of those. I want to finish well serving God with all my heart all the way to the end. And I hope that's everybody else's that's plan. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your love. Lord, help us all to walk closer with you. Help us to seek after you in, with our whole heart 
and to be well taught and to be followed up your followers. Help us to be able to hear from you. Well done, good and faithful servant. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.